Mark 6, beginning in the middle of verse 6. And he, that's Jesus, went around about the villages teaching, and he called to him the twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, except staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said to them, In whatsoever place you enter into a house, there abide until you depart from that place. And whosoever will not receive you or hear you, when you depart, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Truly or verily I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, today, may we have a better understanding of this first missionary experience. Help us to understand what the disciples were doing as a, as early apostles, help us to understand what Jesus was doing in sending them out, and help us to see some parallel for our church. Help us to be honest with ourselves, to evaluate our own hearts according to your word. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you as Savior. Open that heart to salvation. Help her or him to see that it is only through the gospel that we are reconciled to our God. That it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Help us, Lord, to see the blessing of the gospel as it's preached by these men to come and follow Jesus, and may we be followers of him. Bless our church, Lord, that we would be obedient to you, follow your instructions, and not be turned away by rejection in our community, but rather, Lord, be committed to the task of doing your work until you return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next Sunday marks 20 years since I began preaching in North Carolina. In that time, I estimated this week, I preached about 2,000 times, which is pretty remarkable when you think about I have never once repeated a sermon illustration in all that time. <laughs> okay, maybe once. Maybe once. Milestones, like 20 years, cause one to stop and do a couple of things. It causes me to be incredibly thankful for what God has done. I know we're not the largest church. We are the largest church on Twyla Road. <laughs> A distinction I think we'll hold for some time, at least until Joe gets all the Koreans to come to church here. <laughs> then we'll start paying rent to them. God has done some pretty amazing things here at our church, and I'm very grateful for that. It makes me also stop and evaluate where we are. When I was in the Marine Corps, I received a yearly fitness report. I vaguely remember someone with higher rank sitting me down. He had a sheet of paper and his pen, and he's kind of checking things off, asking me questions, going over things that happened during the year. Those fitness reports were important for gaining rank and responsibility. I'm, I'm not sure how I ever passed any of them. I, I always felt a little bit out of place in the Marines, and at least until the end of the Gulf War. But those fitness reports are an evaluation of how things have been. And I would like to do one of those here. I want to give us a fitness report by re-evaluating our mission. And to do that, I want to ask us three questions. Are we obeying the Lord? Are we following his instructions? And are we letting rejection hinder our ministry? And I'm drawing those questions directly from the text. Now, before we begin, 
I want to give you an overview of what I see actually happening here in Mark's gospel. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain, I believe, two commissions. An early commission by Jesus to the twelve, and a later commission that we call the Great Commission. The second commission is better known, even if it's not entirely understood. In fact, most Christians are unaware that there was an early commission, that it even exists, even though it's recorded in the three synoptic Gospels. The first commission contains similar parts to the second. There is a command to go, along with a command to preach the Gospel. Baptizing is kind of assumed in that command because the disciples were already doing that along with Jesus. The, the command also contains a couple of unique features that's not a part of the Great Commission, the Second Command. This commission includes a healing ministry though through casting out demons. We call that spiritual warfare. And, and anointing with oil. That would be something like medical help, medicine. The Great Commission includes none of that. Second, this commission also limits the disciples to minister among the Jews only, go only to the house of Israel. The Great Commission delimits that command to include the importance of sharing the gospel also to the Gentiles. So with that in mind, we can still use this commission as a sort of evaluation tool to help us see if we are keeping on mission. Remember, I want to use these three diagnostic questions to see if we are really doing what God wants us to do. Are we obeying the Lord? Are we following his instructions? And is rejection hindering our efforts? So let's begin. Number one, we must obey the Lord. He is the head of our church. You see in the middle of verse 6, Jesus went round about the villages teaching. Then he called to him the twelve and began to send them forth two by two. So you have six groups of disciples plus Jesus now going through the villages around where they were. The disciples were trained to do what Jesus did. And the primary thing that Jesus did was teach the people. There were, according to Josephus, a Jewish historian, hundreds of villages in this area of Israel. And Jesus is visiting as many as he can go. And everywhere he goes, he goes into the synagogue, the gathering place of the Jews on the Sabbath day, and he opens some scroll of the Old Testament, and he would begin to teach the people from the Old Testament. This is Jesus' ministry. Alongside that ministry... Jesus is also healing people through exorcism. That is, he had authority over demons and he was casting them out of people. There was at that time an amazing amount of spiritual warfare going on in these villages because Satan is always actively opposing the work and ministry of Jesus. So Jesus, seeing the vast amount of work before him, sent his disciples out to be apostles. He is calling them to gather to him and then sending them out. That word, those words, sending out, to send out, is our root word for apostle. That's what it means to be an apostle, one who is sent out. And Jesus sent them out in pairs, probably for mutual encouragement. Some people think it's to establish a witness against those people in the villages. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, in order to uh, go to court, you had to have two witnesses. So maybe that's what's going on here against these cities. I don't know which of these it is. I kind of favor mutual encouragement. I think the disciples, especially at this point, would have gotten very discouraged if they were going out by themselves. But as Jesus is the head of the church, and as now you see him sending out his apostles to do this ministry. Notice he enables those whom he sends to do what he requires. He gave them, the text says, power 
over unclean spirits. That is literally, friends, the work of the apostles here was authorized by Jesus himself. Now, there are two main words for power in the New Testament. There's another word, but it's not used very often. The two main powers, words for power in the New Testament are dunamis. That's the word power or ability. We think of something that has, is able to do something through that kind of power. And exousia, that's the word for authority. So when you think of power, you think of ability and authority. The word exousia, the word authority, is the word that's in use here. Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. He authorized them to cast out these demons. They were literally empowered to exercise these demons themselves. So Jesus, as the head of the church, is empowering his people to do the work that he wants them to do. And that is still going on. Jesus is actually empowering us through the Holy Spirit to do the work he wants us to do. So let's just say it this way. Jesus leads us. Isn't that true? He is leading us. When we refer to him, we call him our Lord. That word has the idea of being our master. He's our savior. The one who saves us from sin. He's our Christ. Or we would say, that's the Old Testament word, Messiah. The anointed king. And he's our shepherd. And we are doing his work. We answer to him. He empowers us to do the work. We do it under his authority. It's always under his command. Because he's the head of the church. Listen, the pastor is not the head of the church. Deacons are not the heads of the church. There's no family that leads a church. When I was first starting out in ministry, one of the hardest things to do is to get people to trust you to be their pastor when they don't know you at all. That's hard to do. So you're just starting out. You find a church that'll hire you, call you in, let you be their shepherd. It's difficult. And I had a church call me. I had my resume out. I was in my early 20s. And this church called me. And it was, I don't remember the last name. Let's just say Francis Street Baptist Church. Let's just call it that. I don't remember. It might have been that. It was probably something else. That name sticks in my mind for some reason. But let's just say Francis Street Baptist Church. And I, I called the church. And I found out, talking to the secretary, that Francis Street Baptist Church was named for the Francis Street was named for the family, a name for the pastor who started the church years and years ago. So I thought, okay, so you got Francis Street Baptist Church on Francis Street, started by the pastor who's Pastor Francis or whatever his name was, you know, what you understand what I'm saying. And then I ended up, the lady said, Well, let me set you through to um, the leader of our pulpit committee. Um, her name is I'm just going to throw out a name here. It, it, forgive me if I'm if I'm uh, stereotyping using the name Lois, but that's also the name that kind of sits in my mind. I, I know that's an older name. It's not in vogue, but it was Lois Francis, something like this. And maybe Francis was her first name, and I'm forgetting the last. But anyway, so here I had the head of the pulpit committee was the last name uh, that matched the street and the church. And I'm going, ah. Explain that to me. There's no family that runs a church. There's no favorite teacher that runs a church. Jesus is the head of the church. And thus, he comes first, ladies and gentlemen. We celebrate only him. We honor only him. We, we don't pat ourselves on the back for serving him. We're his doulas. Literally his slaves, his servants. There, there's no advantage to being the chief of the servants. You're a servant. And servants don't get celebrated. I, I, I have been in churches and it just rubs me the wrong way. 
where, you know, the pastor comes back from vacation and everybody's clapping or giving him a standing ovation. Or you hit some milestone and, and the deacons, uh, probably at the behest of the pastor, but the deacons uh, have some prize to give him. So he and his wife are called up and they, and they make this big deal about them. Or, or some ministry leader hits some milestone and all of these things start happening. Do you know what crosses my mind? What Jesus said in Matthew 6, you have your reward. And let me tell you, I'm not going to let any of you steal my reward. <laughs> Jesus comes first had a gentleman leave here because we didn't celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. This was at the very early part of our church. And I said, I, I understand Martin Luther King was very influential in your community. He was an African-American man. I said, I'm not taking anything away from the civil rights movement, what, what was going on and what he did. I, I don't want you to understand that. I, I personally have some problems with Martin Luther King theologically, biblically. But, but civil rights-wise, you know, he was a trailblazer. We give him all the credit for that. I said, I have nothing wrong with that. But at College Park Baptist Church, we only celebrate one birthday. And we do it every December. And it isn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> we only celebrate Jesus. He's the head of the church. So we live in obedience to him. So the question is, are we obeying the Lord? You see, if, if what I've just said is true, that Jesus is the one sending these people out to do this work, if, if that's true, and Jesus is the head of the church, then the question, this is the evaluation question, are we being obedient to him? And we really have to evaluate every aspect of our ministry under that question. We have to put the nursery and the choir and the preaching and the teaching ministries and the and the teens and all the things that go into ministry, we have to put all of those under that heading. Are we being obedient to the Lord? It, are the pastor or pastors obeying the Lord? Are the deacons obeying the Lord? Are the ministry leaders obeying the Lord? Are church members obeying the Lord? Regular attenders, are they obeying the Lord? Are you obeying the Lord? Do you Begin each day with the thought, I live today to be obedient to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you obeying Him? Well, with that in mind, then, logically, it stands to reason, if we're going to obey Him, that we, this is point number two, we must follow His instructions. And this is because our mission is urgent. There are so many things that churches do that are not part of the instructions of what Jesus gave. And as churches get older, and I recognize now after 20 years that this could happen anywhere. It certainly could happen here. As churches get older, things get added to those ministries that are not critical to following the instructions of Jesus. So every once in a while, you have to reevaluate and ask yourself, is this really mission critical? Is this really doing what Jesus is commanding us to do? In fact, you look at verse 8. He commanded them. And look how particular and specific this gets. Do not take anything for your journey. I am sending you out on a, on a mission. You must go as you are right now. You can take a staff. But that's it. That's nice. You're going to walk out two by two, village to village. Don't take bread, a script. Don't take money. You can take sandals. But don't take an extra cloak or tunic. Now the other gospels add in a couple of details to the story. Matthew adds Jesus' travels. In, during his travels, he became increasingly burdened for the people of these villages. You read that in Matthew 9. There was a leadership boy. Jesus says they were like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord saw that the harvest as being plentiful. That's, that's where that story comes in. It's white already to harvest. That, that whole statement of Jesus comes right before he sends out his disciples into the villages. Matthew and Luke then add also they're only to go to the Jewish people in those villages. There were Gentile-centered villages around those regions. He says, do not go to those villages. Don't even go to the Samaritan villages. Go only to Jewish villages. And then specifically he says, make no provisions for your trip. Jesus actually gives them a packing list. He sends it to their iPhone, you know. 
at the packing list from Jesus, okay? You could take a tunic, you could take sandals, you can take a staff. What can't you take? Well, you can't take bread, you can't take a bag, okay? Yeah, uh, Bartholomew, put your bag away. You know, can't take the bag. You can't take any money. And immediately Jewish Judas is you know, unloading his pockets, right? Because he was the guy with the money. They were to go light. Don't bring much on this trip. And why? Because Jesus is so burdened for these people. The mission is urgent. He says, go right now. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the mission of Jesus is still urgent. It's still imperative. We cannot let 20 years of history allow, keep us, prevent us from seeing that the place where we live, there are men and women, boys and girls, dying without Jesus today. It's still urgent. It's still imperative that the church of Jesus Christ take the gospel to the nations around us. In fact, God is bringing the nations here. And urgency is there. And, and he says here, in fact, your ministry is more important than your own comfort. He said to them, in whatever place you enter into a house, stay there, abide there until you depart from that place. They were to remain wherever they were accepted in a village. So here they come in two by two. They got their staff. They got their clothes and they walk into a village and they begin preaching the gospel to that village. And one of the people says, hey, why don't you come over to our house? This is really great. I'm really in with what you're doing. I agree with this. Come to our house. You can be our guests while you're here in the village. And the first house they get to is a nice home, but a modest home. You know, maybe there's only one room and everybody's sleeping in the same room. Think a cabin in the old West, American West. You know, one big a cabin, one room, uh, maybe uh, bathroom facilities as they were back then are kind of outside somewhere and inside they have one room and that's it. And, and, and it's comfortable. It's not, you have a roof over your head. The rain doesn't hit you. Uh, there's a fire in the fireplace. It's comfortable as it were, but it's not real nice. And then as you're there and you're preaching, um, along comes uh, maybe one of the more influential businessmen of the town. And he also accepts the gospel. And he says, listen, I know you're over there at uh, Brother Bob's house. But, uh, you know, um, I have a really nice home and it has a courtyard and many rooms. And, um, you know, uh, I think most people call it a mansion. It's really quite nice. Why don't you come stay with me? I mean, what would human nature do? Uh, hey, you know, Bob, it's been great. You've been wonderful. And and uh, Mrs. Bob, you've been such a beautiful host, a wonderful host. But, you know, this family over here is offering me us an opportunity. And, you know, uh, Bob's family's going, well, I, I'd live there too if I could. <laughs> sure, go out. No, Jesus says, don't do that. He's really saying, you're in a position of need. You're depending on the hospitality of others. So remain where you are. You don't have bread. You don't have extra clothes. You don't have any money. But this need gauges how people truly receive their message. It's really all about the message. And if they accept the message, they'll receive you hospitably. But if they don't, well, as we'll notice later, they're in trouble. But you are not to find better accommodations. Don't let the whole grass is greener mentality land you somewhere else. Remain where you are. Put all of your emphasis on preaching the gospel while you're gone. And so the apostles are told to remain in one place. Now you look at this, these, these commands, and you realize that we don't live under these commands today. These are specific to that ministry, that particular mission. But I think we can gain some instruction from this because the idea first is, well, if we're to obey him, if we agree, that's important. We must obey Jesus. He's the head of our church. Then, then it's logical to say, well, then we have to do what he says. So obeying him means following his instructions. And I think that requires a few things. It means we have to know what Jesus said, just like those disciples did. We have to believe in what Jesus said. And we have to be willing to teach that to other people. 
So I think that's all true. Further, that requires us to know God's word because now we're going to take a step out from this. We're not those 12 going on a particular mission to Palestine. We're not taking the gospel to those villages, those ancient villages, preaching only to Jews. So we're not within that construct. We're in a completely different context here. But I think within our context, we can derive these ideas that we have to know God's word. How in the world am I going to follow the instructions of my head, of my master, if I don't know what he said? So I have to know God's word. I have to follow the commands that apply to me. You have to follow the commands that apply to you. And you have to encourage others to do that too. That's where we live. I, I think today there is so much danger of innovation in the American church. This is so popular in the Western culture churches, American Christianity. It's all about brand. And if you understand, I get emails now. I, I get uh, things in the mail encouraging me to go to all sorts of seminars on how to, to form a brand. I could become a brand. There's a style involved. And, it, and if we're going to fit the style that's popular, well, first of all, we have to repaint the walls. And I have to get the ceiling tiles right. Well, this is for today. I need to get the black ceiling tiles. It's got to look like a theater. That's, that's today. Now, listen, it may not be popular 20 years from now. So at some point, we'll have to remodel. But you got to fit whatever's popular. So it's not about gathering people together to hear God's word and to go out and serve him. It's about creating a brand. It's also about cult of personality. So especially megachurches, it's all about who the speaker is. This is the problem with banks lending them lots of money for huge buildings, is that we're now just now starting to see what happens when megachurches close. It's like a mall closing in your community. You've got this huge building that's empty. And then there's certain guidelines that foster growth that must be followed. Now, this is not new. Since the middle of the 19th century, here in the United States, there have been all sorts of innovations that have come into the church. Revivalism, I was mentioning that in the adult Bible class this morning. Uh, Charles Finney and his influence on going forward. Uh, you understand that uh, 200 years ago, nobody went forward ever in church. There was no altar to go running toward. That, that's something Charles Finney developed. In fact, evangelists of the modern kind, uh, people who have a little team and they travel from place to place, I, I have no problem with that. I call them adjunct pastors. But the truth is, is that they're not anticipated in Scripture at all. In fact, the closest thing you have to them is something Paul said as an insult, calling those type of people super apostles. And uh, he, he didn't like the super apostles, I'll just tell you. So evangelists of the modern kind is kind of an innovation. Parachurch ministries, there are good ones and there are bad ones. They're not really anticipated in Scripture. And, and, and there's been a whole bunch of innovations since Pentecostalism came uh, in 1901. It started in Topeka, Kansas. We can blame all the people from Kansas, right? For Pentecostalism. No, we can't do that. But it began in uh, Pentecostalism. And Pentecostalism has brought all sorts of things into the church. All these innovations have come into the church through Pentecostalism, and probably the, the largest of these is Pentecostal worship. Uh, nearly every American church now follows Pentecostal worship. I'm, I'm not saying every innovation is wrong, but I, what I am saying is this. If it's not mission critical, then we really have to evaluate it with extra scrutiny. Is this really what God wants us to do? Is this really part of obeying his instructions? Because that's why I'm here. I'm here to live and to serve him by following his instructions. That's evaluation question number two. Is this what I'm doing? And if you, and if you follow the logic so far, he's the head of the church, okay? I'm to obey him. Therefore, I must follow his instructions. Then I guess in order to do that, I have to know his word. So the question, are you learning the word of God for yourself? And I don't just mean through the preaching and teaching here on Sunday, but are you actually reading and meditating upon it yourself day by day? Is that part of your daily routine? 
Are you studying it for yourself? Is it something you are actually memorizing? And and I'm not, I don't want to guilt you into doing that, but I think at the very least our church can do is memorize the couple verses a month. I'm going to tell you that if some of you, if it was Awana, you wouldn't even have your Lammy patch yet. Yeah. But it's imperative. It's a priority. We have to read and meditate and learn and study and memorize. How shall a young man cleanse his way? The psalmist says, by taking heed thereto according to thy word, thy words have I hidden in my heart so that I will not sin against you. It's just imperative that we do this. And are you sharing those words with others? That's part of God's instructions to us. Is not only within a church, in the one anothering, this kind of informal, it, it's organized in the sense that it's part of a church, but it's informal in the just as we bounce off of each other, are we one anothering each other by exhorting each other in the word and encouraging each other to follow Christ? That's all part of living out his instructions. And then as we're out in our community, it's taking the gospel to people in our community, whether it's through social media, whether it's through just talking to people in the community who don't know Christ about the gospel. Are you following his instructions? And just as we we must obey God by following his commands, and this includes sharing this with others, can can I just add one last thought? We cannot let rejection hinder our efforts. That's point number three. Those who reject the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, will reap God's judgment. He says in verse 11, whoever will not receive you or hear you, when you depart, shake off the dust of your feet for a testimony against them. Because I say to you, truly, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Can you imagine what he just said? (laughs) Judgment flows opposite the way most people think it does. The world hates Jesus. Those who love Jesus are equally hated. Jesus said, marvel not that they hate you. They hated me first. They hate Jesus. Those who love Jesus are hated by the world. Our message is spurned by them. They not only hate your your Lord, they hate the gospel. And there are people who are influential in media and entertainment who if you actually listen to the things they write and say, you will understand. They hate God. They won't hear you. Do you see what he says here? If that city, they will not receive you. They will not hear you. Talk about judgy. (laughs) I go to somebody and I give them the good news. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And all of a sudden they start judging me. Well, you're saying that all, all the other gospels are false. Yes, I am. There's only one way to God. And that's through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except but by me. That's it. That's the way. If you haven't come to God the Father through Jesus Christ by accepting his gospel, by repenting of your sins, and turning by faith in him alone for salvation, then you right now, you may judge me for my faith, but I'm going to tell you something much worse is actually happening. God is judging you. This is actually what he's saying. The judgment of God is on them, not us. Don't pity yourself that you become isolated from people in your community or pushed out or embarrassed don't don't judge don't be worried and pity yourself because that because the judgment is not from them to you the judgment is from god upon them and there are a lot of really sweet old grandmas who make great chocolate chip cookies 
who will spend an eternity in a godless hell in a lake of fire because they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, even saying that, there, there are people today who would look and say, you are so narrow-minded. I'm only as narrow as the word of God is narrow. And I have real trouble sometimes because I end up in a situation where I have to publicly in a community defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'll do that. And I'll do it not because I'm, I, I really want to say this. My flesh says, don't. Keep your mouth shut. This is hard. This is embarrassing. This is going to make everybody look at you. But it's imperative because you know that when you speak the words of God, a couple of things are going on. If they do not accept the words of God, judgment of God is upon them. And notice what Jesus says. You go into those villages and they reject your message. That's the message of the gospel. They reject your message. He says, leave them. You gave them an opportunity. They said no. The Holy Spirit of God can still bring them to faith. You can still pray for them. But you understand, leave them. And then he says, you shake the dust off of your shoes, off your sandals. This is a symbol of God's wrath upon them. You actually see the Apostle Paul doing this in Acts 13 when he's in Pisidian Antioch. He leaves shaking the dust off of his clothes. In Acts 18, verse 6, he's leaving Corinth the same way. He's leaving the Jews in Corinth saying, I'm kicking off the dust of my sandals. The idea was, is that you are defiled. Even the dirt is defiling, so I'm going to shake the dirt off. And now you are liable for God's wrath. And he says they're under a greater degree of punishment than even Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you think of Sodom, how bad was their judgment? Where God actually destroyed those cities in something that resembled a natural disaster in what would probably best be described as a volcanic eruption. He absolutely destroyed those cities and all of the people there including most of Lot's family, men and women, they are in hell today in a godless, Christless hell being judged. And in the day of judgment, when they stand before God, when God opens the books and the dead, small and great, stand before him in something we call the great white throne judgment, at that point, he says, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom, for those who heard the gospel. Do you realize, folks, that here in the United States, we have some people who will stand before God and will be judged in greater degree and to greater judgment just because they lived here. And every day they had sermons on the radio that they could have listened to and sermons on the internet that they could have heard and, and tracks that they could have read and they were inundated with truth and they turned their back on it. And God will hold them in greater judgment. So why is it when we feel rejected by these whom God is rejecting? Why is it we feel embarrassed? There's a lady, she's a couple years older than me. We grew up, didn't grow up the entire time together, but I knew her pretty well in high school. And uh, she's now, it's evident through her life, she's an unbeliever. She, she, uh, she clearly does not know the Lord as her Savior. She goes to a, an Episcopal church that is one of the inclusive churches. It's uh, the ones that doesn't matter what kind of gross sin you're in, what kind of horrible wickedness you're in, you know, we'll accept you. And I, I tell people all the time, if somebody living in horrible sin wants to come to our church, we would love to have you come, but we will not tolerate your sin. You can't live in horrible sin and be a member of our church. And you're not going to feel comfortable here because we preach against sin. But hopefully, if you have pride in your life, you're not comfortable here either, right? I mean, I hope we're all uncomfortable with our sin. Well, she posted on Friday night something about how she was excited to get back to church on Sunday. 
a church that's loving and accepting of all people because that's how God is. Well, God is love. We know that that's true. But the God who is love will one day stand in judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. And the God who is love will one day stand in judgment against these cities, these villages that these apostles went to. And the God who is love will one day stand in judgment against the people who live right here in our town. So why why do we feel embarrassed when we talk to them? Why do we feel judged when we talk to them about the Lord? Why, Why do we feel small? What little judgment they can pour out on us here is nothing in comparison to the judgment of God that is being and will be fully poured out on them. And so we have here this truth. They have it worse. And so we can't let rejection hinder our efforts. In fact, this is letter B, we're blessed by our obedience to him. It says in verse 12, kind of ending this little part, this little section of what Mark is saying. He's going to bring it back later in verse 30, but he ends it here and he says, they went out and they preached that men should repent. And they cast out devils and anointed people with oil that were sick and healed them. The apostles followed Jesus' instructions to the letter. They go, they went out, and they followed a pattern set by Jesus himself. Jesus was the one who preached. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed people. It doesn't say he used oil to do that. This is not a pattern that Jesus gave. In the old world, olive oil was used as a medicine. So they gave oil to the sick and healed them. The apostles are following Jesus' instructions in going and following his pattern. And because of that, they were being blessed. It's a joy to serve the king. Listen, when when you realize the situation the world is in and that they are under the judgment of God, what a blessing we have to take the good news to the world, to be the church that says, come, all you who are Uh, uh, weak and heavy laden. Come. Jesus here will give you rest. He, He will relieve you from your burdens. He will relieve you from your sorrow. He'll take away the guilt in your heart through the gospel. Do you know how many people live around us in depression because of guilt? Because of the shame they have and they've tried everything they can to get rid of that shame and they can't do it? This is why people who live in the grossest sins are often the ones who commit suicide the most. They have what's called cognitive dissonance in their brains are saying this isn't right because God created us in his image and he's saying this isn't right and yet they're living that way and it's just fighting, fighting, fighting and they get to a point where they just say "I, I can't do this anymore and they end their own lives. This happens. What a joy to go to people like that and say, can I tell you the good news that Jesus can take all of that away? He can get you out of your addictions. He can help you overcome the struggles you've had because of past abuse. He can help you through your crisis. Jesus is the answer to all of your problems. It's a blessing to be his messenger. Years ago, I wanted to be a politician. Can you see that? Would have been kind of fun. I joined the Marines because I realized when I was 17 that the politicians who had military background did better. So I joined for all the right reasons. <laughs> I, wanted to be a, I wanted to be a politician, and I thought I would look really good in a uniform, and also girls liked it too. I mean, that was kind of, kind of a, a second idea there. Yeah. And during the Gulf War, I came to a realization by myself right around Easter Sunday, 1991. I don't remember what month or day it was, but it was on a Sunday, Easter Sunday. I came to a realization that everything I'm doing in pursuing this is good, but it's nothing in comparison to doing what I'm doing right now. It's just not. Because while you can do a lot of good in politics, and we have some great politicians, and and I appreciate all the godly politicians who we have, There aren't many of them, but I appreciate them. And you can do a lot in business, and you can do a lot. Just pick a profession. Those are all good. But I realized if I really want to do something 
that's truly generational changing, that's truly world transforming, that has influence in eternity. It's doing this right here. And because I still believe in a heaven and hell, I find pleasure in sharing with people the blessing of the gospel. It's just so great. And, and no matter, you say, well, I'm not a pastor. Okay, fine. But no matter where you are, you still carry that message with you. We, we have, as Paul says, a treasure in an earthen vessel that the light of the glorious gospel of God will shine to them out of us. And it's a blessing to share the answer to life's problems with other people where you can actually take the word of God and say, I know it doesn't specifically talk about the problem you're in right now, but this is the answer. This solves the problem right here. That you can do that. And his disciples now as apostles for a short time, later they'll be full apostles, but as sent ones, they go out into those villages and in verse 30, they come back and they return to Jesus. Mark, uh, Matthew's gospel, Luke talks about what happens I think Luke gives it in greater detail. They're rejoicing. Even the demons had. We had power over the demons. You, you, you realize they leave and come back and they go, this was great. This was so good what we were able to do for you, Lord Jesus. And that's where you and your family ought to be. You say, okay, as a church, as a church, we want to obey Jesus Christ. He's the head of our church. Logically, that means we want to follow his instructions. But ultimately, we cannot let ourselves be hindered by rejection. Will people reject our message? Of course. They have been for centuries. What, what makes us think they wouldn't reject our message? That we'll knock on every door, that we'll talk to every friend, and they'll just go, you know, I don't know why you didn't tell me this earlier. I've just been waiting for someone to tell me this. How often does that happen? Once in a while, but very rare. Most of the time, it's closed door, rejection, slam doors. It's all... It's all of the rejection and it piles up and it feels like I've been serving God and I've not been getting anywhere. And, and if I took stock of my ministry, there's not a whole lot to say I've really accomplished. You have accomplished something. You obeyed the King of Kings. You obeyed your master and you didn't let rejection keep you from obeying him. So are we letting rejection stopping us from sharing the gospel? from living out God's word? Are we embarrassed to live out a godly ethic in front of other people? I mean, rejection is to be expected, but here's evaluation question number three. Is it hindering what we're doing? We must obey the Lord. He's our master by following his instructions. Even when we are rejected, we cannot give up. So the question is, will we reach our community for Jesus Christ? I don't know, years ago I read a Chinese proverb. It was written by an old Chinese general. This has nothing to do with modern China. And the general said something like this. If China is to be free, then my community must be free. And if my community is to be free, then my family must be free. And if my family is to be free, then I must be free. And I kind of look at the church that way. If my church, if College Park Baptist Church, and we should all say it's mine. If my church, if your church, our church is to be what God wants it to be, then we all must be doing this. And it has to start with the church level, and then it has to go to your family level, and then it has to go to your personal level. So whether you're a, a young teenager or even in upper grade school, or, or whether you're the saint, saintliest senior saint we have, I should have said it the other way. The senior is saintly saint we have, right? It doesn't matter the, the age difference. It doesn't matter the maturity difference. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you obeying him, following his instructions, and saying, I will not let rejection stop us from doing it? Let's pray. Lord, help us, Father. Now, dear God, to, to do what the word teaches us here personalize our responsibility before you and to
follow the example of these men who went to their villages around them and shared the good news of what Jesus was bringing to them, a kingdom of life. Before I finish praying, can you say of yourself, I am obeying Jesus. I am following his instructions. I'm not letting rejection hinder me from doing that. Is that true in your life? And if it's not true in your life, I'd like to pray for you. I, I don't know which, which part of those questions is not true. It's, it's not important for me to know. You know. Maybe there's something in your life and you're not obeying God as you should. You're just not. Maybe there's a part of your life where you're not really following his instructions as you should. Maybe you don't know God's word like you should. You know that. Maybe you're not saved. You say, I haven't even started this process. I, I haven't confessed my sins and repented and believed the gospel. I haven't done that. And you need Christ in your heart. If God's Spirit's speaking to you, I'd love to pray for you. Is there anybody at all? Say, Pastor, pray for me. God's Spirit has been speaking to my heart today. Anybody at all want me to pray for you? Yes, ma'am. I'll pray for you. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Pastor, pray for me. Yes, sir. I'll pray for you. Yes. Yes. Yes, ma'am. In the back, I'll pray for you. Lord, it's so easy for us to get sidetracked off the mission. Help us not to do that, but help us to be focused on what you want for us. And to do it with all of our might, to love you first and foremost with our heart, soul, and mind and strength. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. You go to the Lord and pray as you please.